Hello. I am a robot. You are listening to Scorchio. A 200% podcast. Hello games fans and welcome to Scorchio, the podcast where we review old football video games. And we're going back again in time, in our time machine, all the way back to the end of 1984. What a year, Mm. what a year that was. Well, the the Los Angeles Olympics. Yep. Euro 84. Yep. Probably some other stuff. Ghostbusters. Ghostbusters, yeah. Gremlins, Gremlins, maybe? Yeah, 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 came out on the same day. I think there's a possibility that 1984 might be the most 1980s year of the 1980s. Um. It's Christmas time. Desperately seeking Susan was that 1984? That might have been. There oh, was a there, there was a purity to uh, 1984 that did give it a certain 80s vibe. George Orwell. George Orwell. He was about. He was about. Yeah, he <laughs> was. Uh, f- His review of the year did very well. It did. Uh, first yeah. episode of Crime Watch, 1984. Oh, well, of course. And possibly the last episode of Crossroads. Possibly. Possibly. But... I could I could be wrong about that. I could, could well be wrong about that. Match Day. Match Day. And Match Day 2. And Match Day 128K uh, is the subject of our conversation this evening. I found out how that game kind of came to be and ended up being published this evening. Okay. Um, It was written by uh, two bedroom coders, John Ripman and Bernie Drummond. Um, And one of our earlier episodes discussed the uh, World Cup Carnival game from the 1986 World Cup Finals. And as eagle-eared viewers will uh, remember... Um, that game was basically a game from two years earlier that was made by a company called Arctic Computing called World Cup Football. Yep. And at a video games expo in 1984, John Ripman was standing at a uh, display piece watching World Cup Football. Um, a demo of the game. And he'd actually written a couple of games for Arctic Computing. He had, uh, yeah. But he, yeah, and he was standing at the demonstration piece and he turned around to the bloke standing next to him and he said, I've just started writing a football game and it is miles better than this. And the guy who he said it to was a chap called David Ward from Ocean Software. And a few weeks later, he received a telephone call from Ward, who said, you know, you were talking about this football game you've written that was miles better than World Cup football. How do you fancy it? And they offered him £25,000 for it. 
at a time when he was working in a shop and earning £7,500 a year. And wasn't he, he was barely out of his teens at this point. He was not very old. No, he was not. And, um, and he went on afterwards to write what I would consider, because I, I, I mean, I've said before that by about the middle of 1988, my interest in the ZX Spectrum was more or less dead. Um, I was 15 and I'd got a drum kit by this time and I discovered the concepts of girls and booze and sitting at home playing computer games did not seem like a way that I wanted to pass my time anymore. Oh, little no. did I well, know. Well, it eats into your masturbating time considerably. It does. It? Oh, God, yeah, 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 yeah. But um, one of the last games that I really loved for the ZX Spectrum was a game called Head Over Heels. Which is commonly assented nowadays to be one of the great ZX Spectrum games. It was an isometric uh, adventure game in which you actually played two characters that you could switch between and they had different abilities and different skills. And uh, he wrote the first iteration of Batman game, which was another kind of isometric adventure game uh, which was also uh, extremely well received at the time and is extremely fondly remembered so he ended up with a track record but it started really with match day yeah i think it's because i think that you're gonna rip into this game (laughs) i don't think you liked it at all um my guess is that you found it insufferably slow uh, you probably thought the music was really annoying. Um, <laughs> if you played the one two eight k version, I doubt if you were very keen on the crowd noise. Uh, but there were things going on in that game which were very, very different for 1984. Number one, there was a degree of collision detection going on. Yes. So the ball would bounce off players rather than kind of passing straight through them which yep. had been the way it had been previously that's very that is very notable um and and secondly um there was also a feeling that you were playing an actual football game rather than something else that had been repurposed for football uh, Match Day was released to rave reviews. It was extremely controversial when it came out because one of the big magazines, Crash Magazine, did not give it its highest rating. They scored it a few points short of that. And it was something that they never really lived down, that the magazine never really lived down. It would be constantly brought up in their letters page. <laughs> and when Match Day 2 came out, and that was a couple of years later... 1987, Match- I believe. Yep. When Match Day 2 came out, they did give it the highest rating and that kind of a, a, a atoned hmm. for their mistake. But was it worthy of that, that uh, highest rating? Yes, it was, yeah. I mean, you have to place it within the context of the time. I've said before on this podcast that with ZX Spectrum games, you can tell from looking at them what year a game came out because the curve of people learning the inner workings of the machine, learning how to use the machine code most um, uh, most economically, was so steep that a 1982 game looks very different to a 1983 game, which looks different to a 1984 game, and so on and so forth. Match Day was written 
in the second half of 1984 and it came out I think at the very start of 1985 it was extremely advanced by the standards of the time it looked much more modern than 99% of other games that were being released at the same time mm. and this was only you know two and a half years since the Spectrum had come out three and a half years since the ZX81 had come out which was like the, the sort of first Sinclair machine that was sold to anybody beyond hobbyists. So to go from nothing, from scratch, because there was no, you know, there was really nothing programming-wise for people beforehand, to a game that kind of sophisticated, and it looked good, you know, the presentation was was excellent. Um, To go from, from, from... from zero to where match day was by the end of 1984 was a really, really, really strong achievement. I will give John Rittman this. His statement that his game was miles better than World Cup football, I mean, fair enough. It is, yeah, it I mean, is he, he, miles better than World Cup football. Well, yeah, he wasn't gonna he wasn't going to do anything worse than that particularly, was he? It would be very difficult. It would have been quite an it would have been quite an achievement. But then, even you know, to give you an idea of how far along and how quickly along the standard and quality of the programming was getting, World Cup football I think came out in the spring or summer of 1984, and it didn't get particularly bad reviews. It got average reviews. Mm. It was considered to be average for the time. Uh, it's just that by the time World Cup Carnival came out in 1986, things have moved on so much that yeah. you weren't going to get away with that shit anymore. Even if it had been, uh, you know, even if it hadn't just been a, a, a two-year-old game with some branding slapped on it and chucked out to the general public, even if it had been a completely new original game, that game was not going to fly in 1986. So let's deal with Match Day the first. Um, yes. As you say, I mean, in terms of presentation, it outstrips any of its uh, contemporaries. Mm-hmm. It looks very sharp. The, the you know the um, option screens look very sharp, and actually yeah. they're full of quite detailed options. I mean, you can tailor the control scheme to your liking. For example, you can change yes. change the names of the teams. You can change the colours of the teams. And the colours of the pitch. Yeah, it's all it's all very well. adjustable. Yeah, and I think it's important to remind ourselves in 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 these days when you know I'm recording this podcast on a laptop which has a 128 gigabyte um, SSD, and there are two. Uh, external hard drives plugged into it one terabyte and a two terabyte so three terabytes this game was written in 48 kilobytes of memory yeah 48 kilobytes you wouldn't get a jpeg image that was used on a website that would be 48 kilobytes so to write an entire game of any degree of sophistication into that amount of memory is that it has to be placed in context. Yeah. So when you give it the slate, I know you're about to give it, I think it is important to, to qualify that by saying that, I mean, you know, if, if you're expecting it to be up to the speed of sensible soccer, or if you're expecting it to be up to the speed of kickoff, if you're expecting it to be up to the speed of um, 
uh, of, uh, of the first FIFA games. I mean, the 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 first Commodore Amiga. I think I think the Amiga was five hundred and twelve uh, kilobytes. So even that was more than ten times as powerful as a ZX Spectrum. So mm. they're working with you know it's you like car racing. So, so to use a motor racing analogy, it's like trying to win uh, a Formula One race in a you know in a in a Mini Cooper. Yeah, the golf in the quality of the machines, the golf in terms of what they could do. Is that expected? Had eight colours, you know. Yes, all of them are present and correct in the colour changing options for this game. I'm actually going to surprise you in that I didn't completely hate this game in fact i thought that there were some very interesting signs of football games that you know mm-hmm. football games that we now know today uh it was perhaps the first iteration of the actual game of football starting to be captured by video games chiefly amongst these i thought was the ability to pass the ball around and you can you can pass the ball around one of the most frustrating things about all of these games that we've played so far even fifa is how difficult it is to move the ball by you know passing it between players rather than just yeah yeah, rather than just dribbling it Everyone knows that the best way to move the ball around the field is by passing it to each other. But it took football games a very long time to catch up with that. This one, you can pass the ball. I mean, it's not necessarily the most accurate, but mm. it, it can be done. It can be done even by a complete rank amateur and beginner such as I am. Well, it's interesting, actually, in the preparation for, for, for recording this podcast, I watched a couple of playthroughs of it on YouTube. And one of them had a, was, was a guy who was playing the game who was clearly quite good at it. Yeah. And I tell you what, that looked completely different and much more like a real football game than it was with the likes of you or I getting involved in Well, it. yeah. And actually, another thing that I... I I noticed is there was a certain amount of movement from the other players on your team. Yes. Another frustrating thing about um, a lot of these games that we've played is how static the other players on your team are. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, when you're not in control of them, they will mill about or wander around or wander away. Whereas, you know, an actual football player would be trying to get themselves into an advantageous position to maybe receive the ball. And there are signs that match day is doing that. Yeah. I never quite got a handle on how many players were on each side. Uh, I think, I mean, it seems to be about six a side plus a goalkeeper. Yeah, that sounds Uh, about right. I don't, I don't think it's, you know, it's, it's meant to, really be an issue that comes up i think it's supposed to be a impressionistic representation of football rather than slavish accuracy so they're well, not yeah, saying I mean, I think they're not that... saying that this is a five a side game they're not saying that this is a seven a side game they're just saying it's a game of football 
And yeah, the, this is, the players yeah. you can see yeah. are the players that you can see. Yeah, this is what we can squeeze in. I mean, what's the point in having 11 players if it ends up just being completely overcrowded like that terrible streak of piss we were playing last week? Well, where, yeah. You know, there's there's no point. No point in it. There is a certain amount of overcrowding already. The pitch is extremely narrow, I've yes, found. Yes, but very long. That's what she said. I liked the clock that is in the top right corner. Yeah. Which, you know, counts down to 45 in-game minutes. Or, of course, if you select 45-minute halves in the options, 45 actual minutes. Yeah, you can Uh, actually play it. I mean, we we attempted it once, uh, (laughs) me and a a friend of mine. Because, I mean, another thing to bear in mind here is that this was one of the very first football games where you could play two-player. Yeah, yeah, two-player. And if you selected the uh, match day special, which replicated the quarterfinals of the FA Cup onwards, essentially, mm-hmm. you could select to play without any computer teams at all. And yeah. With, with eight players. Eight humanoid players. Um, which, you know, that's pretty revolutionary stuff. When you consider that at this time a lot of its competition couldn't handle two players running into each other without them disappearing yes yeah yeah Um, that's that's very true i mean i think the important thing to say about the kind of simulation sort of aspects of it is that i don't think that simulation was either a an option or consequently be in the minds of the people who were writing the games. If you were writing a sports game in 1985, you were writing an arcade game because that's where all sports games at the time ultimately originated. Yeah, well, you know? yeah, I mean, we're, we're looking at it, obviously, with the benefit of hindsight. Uh, at the time, no, I don't think anyone had ever in, envisaged that video games could get to the point of refinement that they are at now. Yeah, I mean, it's not it's not the very best sports game that came out on the Spectrum. There were better sports games that came out on the Spectrum. I can think of, I think, three off the top of my head. Um, but uh, what we'll what are to... those? What are those games? Daily Thompson's Decathlon. Uh, Daily Thompson's Decathlon, which is the first game that I bought with my own money for the ZX Spectrum. In fact, I think I bought it at the same time that I got my ZX my my my. My my first own ZX Spectrum. I think it was my twelfth birthday. I got the ZX Spectrum Plus, which was like the one with a slightly fancier keyboard, and that had just come out. Um, and I got Daily Thompson's Decathlon with it. And of course, Daily Thompson's Decathlon was a track and field ripoff, basically. Yeah. Um, and that I think was is in that kind of top three. Um, the second one in the top three was uh, would be Winter Games, which came out across a load of different systems, but that was really good yeah. on the Spectrum version. You could do uh, you could do skiing, you could do figure skating, <laughs> um, a whole bunch of kind of winter stuff. And the thing is that when I was a, when I was about um, eleven or twelve. I became absolutely obsessed with the Winter Olympics when they were held in Sarajevo, the the, the tall villain Dean Winter Olympics. Well, I remember but, one of my earlier memories, actually, the uh, tall villain Dean Winter Olympics.
And once again, a roar of applause. And on the far side of the ring, the people are standing and applauding. Yeah, but I mean, I didn't become particularly enamoured with Torville and Dean. Um, what I was really, what I really loved was the ice hockey in the scheme. Uh, and the kind of bobsleigh and what have you. I thought they were absolutely fantastic. The whole thing was on the BBC. I think it was on in about January. I've got a feeling that it was on at the arse end of the Christmas holidays. So like kind of the start of January. And I got completely, totally into it. I remember fashioning like a kind of homemade ice hockey puck out of something and uh, <laughs> uh, sorry ice hockey stick rather out of something and and kind of uh and, and finding something that i could whack around the living room with that the cat uh well we, yeah it was the cat no i think i think i think the cat had a toy sponge ball like a sponge uh, tennis ball so i think it was that so it was the right um that particular ball was the right interface of big and heavy enough to have a bit of weight to it, but still made of sponge, so it would bounce off things without knocking them over or breaking them. The perfect, perfect scenario. Yeah, yeah, the perfect thing. And so, so I absolutely obsessed over that 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 Winter Olympics, and absolutely, really loved it. Um, and the third, the third game uh, was um, Konami's uh, port of Hypersports which uh, Hypersports was an enormously successful arcade machine. It's a fantastic arcade machine as well. I have it still now on MAME, um, the arcade version of it. And the ZX Spectrum version was superb. It was a uh, very, very faithful rendition within the, within the uh, limitations of the system. Um, it was brilliantly written, graphically beautiful it wasn't slowed down in any way it ran at the same speed as the arcade version uh it was an absolutely and that i think hypersports is probably i think the best spectrum sports game that i can think of a man tries to photograph a zoo's giant pandas in all weathers He takes a break to eat a Kit Kat bar. Oh no. Now the pandas are there. Oh mate. They're roller skating. Now he's finished his Kit Kat. And they're back inside. Fucked it. Have a break. Have a Kit Kat. Eat Kit Kats. But of course, these are all multi-sports. But these events. were all multi- so, yeah, these were all so multi-sport. By yeah. your reckoning, this may be the best single sport sports game. It's one the of ZX. the one of the one of the very best. I mean, it's worth bearing in mind that I didn't play a lot of them. You know, no. a lot of them came out, and I just never never saw them. And and they came out for ev- every single sport you could think of. Um, I remember there being a licensed game, a licensed game called Jonah Barrington Squash, for example. <laughs> there was a officially licensed Grand National horse racing game. 
Um, There there were darts games. There were cricket games. Because it was all entirely British. The the thing to remember, I'm not a great, you know, as you know, I'm no great nationalist or patriot or anything like that. But Mm. I am... That would bring us to Buster Mottram's tennis, I would think. (laughs) Oh, God. Bloody hell. Everybody dressed in white for that one. All right. <laughs> but um but uh but the 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 very nature of ZX Spectrum games was very, very different to any video console or any home computer since then because the games were entirely British. There was no international market. There was US gold bringing in arcade conversions from elsewhere. But there was no kind of influence from outside. So a lot of the games on the ZX Spectrum had this very British feel to them. There was School Days, which was kind of like the, the Beano brought to life. There were games like the um, the Jeff Minter games, which were kind of like, a you know, a video games as written by Neil out of the young ones. Um, there were there were all these games like Pajama Rama, which were have this kind of Monty Python esque sort of sense of humour to them. I mean, you know, it's no coincidence that when you died in Jet Set Willy, a great big boot would come down from the top and stomp on you. Mm. Um, it, it was very very British, and, it, and the games reflected that very British sense of humour, which I don't always like. You know, I'm I'm much more attuned these days to a kind of American sense of humour and to a, certainly to American comedy than I am to British comedy. Um, but the, these games were very British in their outlook and they were much more varied in their styles. You didn't just get, oh, this is a platform game, this is a shooter, this is, you know, there were all stops in between. People were experimenting with different styles. And it was much more varied. And it was also much more hit and miss. There was a lot of dreck about at the time. And you didn't always know if you bought a game. You didn't always know whether it was actually going to be any good or playable or beset by some sort of bug that made it completely unusable after a certain level. There was no way of knowing a lot of the time. Because the reviews often didn't come out for like, you know... a month or two after the games were released. The culture of journalism and reviewing was in its infancy just as much as the games industry was. So everybody was sort of learning together. But, I mean, yeah, I mean, I I loved Match Day when it came out. It was the first game that I played. I mean, I was kind of lucky in that I was on, on board with Football Manager Yeah, very early. So I'd kind of had a game that actually, yeah, that felt like probably what I... But, had half an idea of what being a football manager was like. I, I didn't know any better. I was and like, you know, now you're now you're on the field. You're playing. Um, oh yeah, and now and now you're and now you're out on the pitch and playing. Yeah, you're playing at, at what I would describe as bogling pace at best. It's yeah. There is a there's a very hypnotic tempo to the game. Yeah, and the thing is that if you're used to the speed of sensible soccer, if that's like your kind of benchmark or the realism of the modern FIFA series, it feels like you're playing in slow motion. But if you play it a few times and you kind of you actually start to readjust to how much slower yeah. the pace of the game is, then it does actually start to feel quite natural, and it does actually start to feel like. Um, a, and the other thing is that it kind of gives you the time to prepare if the ball if the ball is floating glacially through the air like a beach ball which it would which, <laughs> which it would it be does. doing quite a lot of the time yeah. then it would give you a 
couple of seconds to think about what you were going to do next and what position you wanted to get your player in or whatever. So it had its advantages, even though I think yeah, you'd want it to be. You'd want it to be quicker. I quite I like. Know. I quite like the way that the, the sprites move. It, they have a sort of power walking. Gate. Yeah, they kind of. Yeah, it's like they kind of stroll, don't they? Um, now, apparently, these sprites are, or were, converted from bears. Yeah, they're lifted from a game called Bear Bother. Which Bear I think Bother, was... which was published by Arctic. Indeed. Yeah. Um, did you look at the sprites from Bear Brother? I didn't. Uh, I should have um, done. Because, I mean, <laughs> I I don't particularly remember Bear Brother, but I'm just looking at it now, and, yeah, there's, the similarity is quite striking. Um, yeah. I mean, they don't look that much like bears, really. I'm not even sure if they are bears. But, I think um, I think they are supposed to be bears. I, I, yeah, they haven't I, got they haven't got bear ears. I honestly I preferred the player sprites from Match Day uh, to the the redesigned ones in Match Day Two. If I'm honest, yeah, they're a little bit squatter and fatter, aren't they? They've yeah, got, they're, they're, they're they're a bit more hench. They're like yeah, they're they're all like berserkers or something in in um, in some sort of medieval. Um, role playing game. They're very yeah. Well, peculiar. I mean, the thing. Yeah, I mean, the thing with Match Day Two is that Match Day Two was an upgrade on Match Day One. The game runs a little bit faster, not enormously, but a little bit faster. And then, of course, you've got the introduction of the power bar, which we'll come back to in a second. The kick, yeah, um, the kick power meter. Yeah, yeah which and that um, in itself was something when Match Day Two came out, and it wasn't just the original match day completely identical, then that was something in itself because that did used to happen. You know, company would change the tiniest, tiniest detail on the game, on, on the original game and re-release it as the follow-up. Yeah. That they, wasn't, well, un- to be that fair, wasn't uncommon. To be fair, they're still doing it now, aren't they? Yeah. We, yeah. yeah we know you are FIFA. We, we see what you're doing. Yeah. We know, we know what you're about. I believe, though, that the, the the power bar idea could have been, you know, that that was something of a, a revolution within football gaming I, at the time. Uh, it also the, the the model for deflections and um, so forth. Yeah, was, I mean, that's was very a, much tweaked. So you could now do headers and all sorts of, you know, volleys and. Yeah, I mean that took a hell things. of a lot of. Yeah, that took a hell of a lot of getting used to. I liked the power bar once I get used, got used to it. Hated it until I did get used to it. Yeah, it's, but as soon as I did, and I understood that okay, well, the power bar is basically, you know, it, it, it's it's how can I put this? It's a rough and ready way of doing it, but it makes you time what you're doing. Yeah, you can't just run onto the ball and whack it at full power or play the dainty little pass that you might like to play. And in a very rough and ready way, that's what football is like. Yeah. Sometimes when somebody passes a ball to you and they kick it too hard, um, then you can't bring it immediately perfectly under control. And while it's coming through the air towards you or along the ground towards you, you've got to figure out what it is you're going to do with it. So where's that power bar going to be? So it, it's not... It's not like what real football is like, but in a kind of almost abstract sense, 
it, yeah. it almost is. And and it was a and it was a again it was a leap forward. It was a it was a it was a development that made it worthy of a of a of a um of a of a of a follow up. It is, I think, impressionistic is probably the the best word. It's like a football match painted by Claude Monet. It's not football necessarily as you knew it at the time or know it now, but there are, the, you know, there's there's plenty there. I mean, you you move the ball around. I've never really got to grips with whether or not the goalkeeper was under my control or not. Uh, I think that on match day two, you have the option of it being computer controlled or manually controlled, and I've got a feeling that the default setting is manual control. Yeah, I, 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 I do. I, I could feel, be wrong. I could be I, wrong about that. I, I I felt quite strongly. I mean, I after last week, which as you know we dealt we we dealt with last week was a very chastening experience. I was delighted to report that very soon after beginning playing the game this week, I managed to score a goal, which eluded me completely with Super Soccer. Yeah, yeah. But I I quickly found myself in arrears again, and I believe it was because the, uh, the goalkeeper, I was expecting rather more from my goalkeeper, and it was simply because I was meant to be controlling him and didn't yeah i mean i think the problem that you have with goalkeepers in these early games is that goalkeeping is extremely difficult to replicate um they hadn't i don't think they decided yet had they about whether or not people wanted to be the goalkeeper well no and it's and if you if you kind of put yourself in that headspace you go back 35 40 years and you're writing the first football games on the the on on, on a home micro well the computer controlling just the goalkeeper is not the intuitive thing to do no if you're if if the player is controlling the entire team then why wouldn't the player control the goalkeeper as well so it's not the obvious thing to do. I think that the idea of goalkeepers being controlled automatically by the computers probably came in because people complained about the fact that they couldn't control the goalkeeper. And the goalkeeper is the difficult one to to deal with because it's not the same as every other player on the pitch. You know, you program one of those outfield players, you've basically programmed all of them. And then you've got this one guy who does a completely different job. And the other thing you've got to bear in mind that makes it difficult is that these games, although they had this kind of this depth to them, this depth on the screen, they weren't three dimensional. This wasn't, you know, this wasn't the type of graphics that you didn't start to get until the early 1990s, actual authentic 3D polygons. These were two dimensional sprites um, that were moving around in such a way that it gave the impression of being in three dimensions. They were power walking bears. Yeah, power walking bears, and of of the fourteen or so power walking bears on the pitch, two of them have to do something completely different, which is not natural to the way that the game is being yeah. written. How do you do a goalkeeper diving left and right on a what's essentially a two D background? It's it's really difficult to do. So it's really really difficult to get right. Now, earlier, I mean, you know. You you thought that I was going to completely hate it. I've been quite positive about it so far, 
but you did nail um, one of my objections on the head, uh, which was the music. You yeah. thought mm-hmm. I was going to find it extremely annoying, and I did. Um, I found the fact that every game begins with a awful, unskippable <laughs> MIDI version of the Match of the Day theme tune almost unbearable. I, I find the Match of the Day theme tune almost unbearable as it is. Uh, and and that version of it nearly, nearly put put me out, put me out already. I was going to tap out before I'd even started. Yeah, well, I mean, by the by the time of match day two, they'd moved it on to when the Saints go marching in, hadn't they? Which is, which is, which is nominally less annoying. Um, uh, nominally, yeah. uh, but I mean, again, you're into the subject of system limitations. I did not, and I should have done. I I did not check out the Commodore sixty four version. Because the Commodore 64 version obviously had the SID chip, the SID chip, which was a vastly superior sound chip uh, to the ZX Spectrum. And I would be interested to know what the sound, what the what the music is like at the start of the game on that. But when it, when it um, comes to limitations, though, I mean, there's there's nothing more limited than doing nothing. Which is an option which they they should have used. They should have explored yeah, but that option. people but people did it was it was a very difficult position I think for programmers at the time because people did expect sound, uh, <laughs> they did expect noises. You know, arcade machines made noises. The Commodore yeah. sixty four made some awesome noises. You know, even now you can still buy albums. You can buy albums of Commodore sixty four game music because that SID chip was was pretty was pretty special and pretty powerful um but the the spectrum was not designed as a games machine um it was pretty poor in terms of sounds and anybody who could get a tune out of it anybody who could do more with it than just some random bleeps and blips was achieving something by doing that so i i like i say i would be interested to hear the commodore 64 version i will probably listen to it after this podcast is done i wouldn't be surprised if it was superior uh i wouldn't be that surprised if it wasn't because i doubt if it was an enormously high priority match day two uh as well as the kickometer and uh, a few other little physics tweaks mm-hmm. also brought in Twin player mode, essentially. Yeah. Two players on the same team, which that, yeah, that's well, that, pretty, uh, pretty fly. Yeah, and, uh, I mean, that was definitely the first time. Uh, certainly, that was the first time that I'd seen that. And a league, the league mode feature that that had the uh, password save uh, every, you know, every match would generate a new league code so that you could pick up your league from whence you had left off, which, again, pretty revolutionary for the time. Yeah, I mean, these these are... Uh, it's really difficult explaining this to somebody who's born in the 21st century or somebody who's grown up in the 21st century in a world in which all the information in, in the history of the world is available in the palm of your hand. Yeah, it's, you floating, it's floating around your head and all you need is a device in your pocket to capture yeah, it. Yeah, it's, 
yeah it's all it's all there and um and and so it's it, it, it's very difficult to explain just how different these innovations are you know some of this stuff is the equivalent of you know if you bought a mobile phone and it could do holograms <laughs> you know it would be, it would be that level of wow some of the best micro games of the mid 1980s would be that sort of a leap forward in terms of what you were what 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 your expectations of what a machine would be capable of and then what it turned out that somebody could actually do with it no real players uh, no, no, no player names at all, actually, no. and and no real, no real teams. So each game uh, in the, the match day series has eight fictionalized teams. These can all be changed, so you can you know put in whatever teams you like. But I wanted to look at the uh, the canonical eight from match day mm-hmm. because I don't know about you, but I've started to project onto some of these teams because when you've got modern football games and all the teams are licensed and you know you see Manchester United or Manchester City or Tottenham Hotspur or whoever Uh you go well I know that is I know their history I know their vibe I know how I feel about them but okay well run me through the eight quickly yeah I Um, I didn't get that in deeply into it this time around the eight teams are i mean the the first two are the, the the sort of the default if you just go in and play a game it will be between Ritman Rovers and Clark PR presumably, okay presumably Park Rangers well yeah i mean that would be presumably I'd, and uh, i mean John Ritman obviously is the guy who wrote it uh, my guess would be that Clark PR would be somebody who worked at Ocean Software at the time. I would um, imagine that all the players are. Well, all, Chris, oh, sorry, all the teams are. Chris Clark appears on the on the title screen, so that's who yeah. he was. All right, okay. Well, there you go. Ocean's United and Stephen City. I think that they're more of your upstart team. I think Ritman Rovers and Clark PR have the sort of a bit of an air of the old industrial mill workers. <laughs> teams i think you're reading far too much into it well but, i know but continue uh, but continue maybe continue. i mean i'll indulge i'll indulge your slow descent into mental health i mean it's just it's but just occurred to me of, <laughs> this is the effect of six weeks of being stuck at home yeah this is playing old football video games this yeah. it's just actually occurred to me that clark pr clark park rangers it's actually be quite a useful team when all of the players are bears because if there's one thing you need when there's bears around is park rangers. Yeah, oh yeah. Ocean United and Stephen City, as I say, I, I get the feeling that you know there's new money there. Maybe maybe Saudi oil money. I'm yeah. a bit. Are dubious. we sure it's not? Are we sure it's not St Evans City? Well, that's a very interesting point. Um, there's it's a number not, of these. Uh, there's a, no. There's a number of these teams where you do wonder whether or not they just couldn't. Do possessive apostrophes, such as yeah. Heath, okay. Who else? Heath's Hornets. Now, okay. Heath's Hornets sounds like a team who would be in a you know that would be a strip in Royal Rovers. So I'm, sounds like an ice hockey team to me. Yeah. Uh, then you've got low key players. Oh. I don't know. I don't know anything okay. about them. 
Well, again, I mean, yeah, probably a nickname, someone's nickname. Ward Wanderers. Okay. And Woods Athletic. And again, you know, that's probably surnames of uh, some of the people who are involved in it. Yeah, I mean, these would all just be... I think the assumption would be that that we'll just stick some placeholder names in there and if people want to change them, they can just change them to whatever they like. We've only got eight spaces anyway. Which, I mean, it did did beg the question why they felt that in in 1985 they felt the need to introduce a game, International Match Day, where, you know, you could play international fixtures. Um, Yeah. Surely Match Day could easily be International Match Day as long as you knew how to spell words. Yeah, I never saw International Match Day, so... Match Day 2 persists with the the same theme, but introduces a number of different teams. Instead of Ritman Rovers, you've got Ritman United. Yeah. And then we start to go a little bit left field with Soccer Armour. Yeah, Soccer Armour, yeah. Soccer Armour, um... Darnell City... Ocean Blues, which I'm pretty sure is an album by Dennis Wilson. Legs Eleven. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, that's just Bombay a, a funny Mix. joke. That's that's my favourite one. Okay. Yeah. I think Bombay Mix as a name for a football team blows your mind just thinking about the 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 impact yep. of that. Stevens Stevens FC and Kev's Cosmos. Yeah. Which again, great name for a football team. Kev's Cosmos versus Bombay Mix. It's going to be a fruity that's a game match, for the, no matter what match way. for the ages, that, isn't it? <laughs> it really is. As as you say, probably all intended to just be placeholders. But it, it, it's still a strange decision in, in many ways. Because I don't think, you know, although obviously there was no licensing, I don't think anyone had even really... Oh, no, no, know, no. I don't think anybody... From the football club side had ever really even considered it. No, I don't think anybody actually gave a shit. But at the same time, you know, John Rittman himself has admitted that he didn't himself. He wasn't a football fan. He wasn't particularly interested in football. Um, I saw an interview with him in, from Retro Gamer magazine from about 2016, in which he said that he had no interest in football um uh, from beyond when he was a child. So he wasn't particularly emotionally invested in the football. So I think that when you're working to a tight deadline, and these games, you know, they would only take weeks to write. They didn't take, you know, they didn't have two-year-long development cycles or anything like that. And I think that you would have to prioritise because you'd have a deadline by which the game was due to be coming out in order to, uh, to hit certain markets and to be out in time for certain things. And I don't think that, you know, if it's if you're not that emotionally invested in football, if it doesn't matter to you, you know, why should I care if these teams are called Liverpool, Everton, Spurs, Arsenal or whatever? Then, yeah, just stick something funny in that will make everybody in the office laugh a bit. Um, and just then, you know, the people who care about it can go in and change it themselves. They probably will anyway. I understand the logic behind it. If that yeah. if that and was actually, the logic behind uh, it, it might not have been, but I there, I would assume it to be. There were later, there were later more advanced games. Um, I'm thinking particularly in terms of things like kickoff, mm-hmm. where you had not real team names. Um, I can't remember what they were. I think they they referred to the colours of of the kits that they played in. I think the names on kickoff. 
but then there wasn't all the option to to change them. Yeah. So you just you know you're stuck with what you've got. And even now on a Pez game, you are dealt the 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 you know the unlicensed hand and the choice whether or not you can be bothered entering in all of the names of the the clubs from their now fairly well established Pez world alternatives. Um yeah, I mean they had a lot of them in sensible soccer, of course. Um and we will yeah. come on to those when we do sensible soccer, which we inevitably will do. Yeah, don't worry people. Um, and they were just and they were placeholders. They were placeholders so you could build your own team. So you could literally have any team you liked if you wanted to take the 20 minutes or so or however long it would take to sit and type the names and put the kits in. You know, if you wanted to do that, then you could go ahead and do it. And I think it's just an extension of the same principle. Yeah. Which, you know, fair enough. So there. I mean, ultimately, I would not be queuing up to play match day again because things have moved on so far. Yeah, yeah. But that is not to say that it is not for someone who has played a lot of football video games and enjoys playing football video games that it's not a worthwhile exercise to have played it because in many ways this is the genesis point mm-hmm. i think uh, you you can forget world cup carnival and, and world cup football they are as nothing i mean they are essentially unplayable mm-hmm. uh, whereas this is the first genuinely considered and, and proper effort at sort of capturing some of the physics, the themes, and the demands of an actual football match. Yeah, I think I know. I I I I think you're right. And like I say, you know, by modern standards, when where the ability is there to create literally a completely authentic footballing universe in, within a video game. Um, then it can be difficult to believe that such a thing, you know, could ever have been considered a marvel. The idea that you could have eight teams that you could change the names of the players of, that you could kick the ball and it would bounce somewhere near realistically off them. That you might have goalkeepers who would dive for the ball rather than just kind of running towards it or standing there could possibly be revolutionary. But there we are. That's what it that's what it was. Even if it was just the fact that you could move the ball around the field by passing it to each other. Yeah. Even if it was just that, then it it's makes it a step far above all of its contemporaries. And it a step far above games that were coming out ten years later. As well, in yeah, and it is, most cases. Yeah, and it is worth bearing in mind that um, there were plenty... There was a... It's, it's, it's weird, actually. There was a real kind of glut of football games sort of spectrum after about 1987-88 time. Uh, when I went back to kind of like old gaming and old spectrum games, I found a, an absolute torrent of all of these games that had come out after I'd given up on the system. And... I don't think hardly any of them are as good as Match Day, which had come out five or six years earlier. So it wasn't necessarily easy to get right. So there. No. Which one did you prefer, Match Day or Match Day 2? Um, I think it's... I can't do it outside of um, outside of the kind of context of it all. And on that basis, I would have to go with Match Day. 
because that felt like no other football game that I had played before, whereas Match Day 2 was a kind of slightly better version of Match Day, which was great and it was fine, but it wasn't it didn't have that sort of wow that the first game had when it came out. No, uh, it's yeah, it's match day, match day for me. I preferred the uh, preferred the sprites, preferred the graphics. Yeah. Um, and I, actually, I mean, much as it's a, a very much a trend in football game design to basically reskin it and give it a few extra tweaks and and gimmicks and toys. Not for me, the not for me the kickometer. I mean, kickometers and and things still can trip you up in twenty twenty. So the rather rudimentary kickometers and things um, of of nineteen eighty seven on a rubber keyed spectrum <laughs> it could drive could easily drive a man to drink. Yeah. I mean, I I was sitting there trying to figure out just how to maneuver around the the in-game interface yeah thinking what the hell was the spectrum even for what was it designed well, to it do was a... because it clearly wasn't designed to play games no it wasn't it, and and Clive Sinclair was quite specific about that it was not designed as a games machine and he kind of almost resisted it to start with you know he was almost like no this isn't a games machine this is something else entirely it was supposed to be a a microcomputer for the home you know it was supposed to be something that dad would do the ho- the house accounting on and you know <laughs> mum would store her recipes on and <laughs> the kids would learn how to program and code useful things on it was it was it was this kind of abstract idea from the sort of 60s and 70s that by the 1980s every house would have a computer in it and it would be like the brain of the house it would be like an operations center um which is which it has become over time well yeah i mean a- i mean he was completely right it's just as is often the case with visionaries their um, particular brand of solution to these visions tend to look a bit laughable it was i mean it was ever so slightly it was ever so slightly off he was wrong he kept backing the wrong horses throughout the 1980s you know he rum old bird wasn't he he, he, he took sinclair research which was in a really successful company initially and kind of ruined it with two successive bad ideas in the space of two years which was Imagine a vehicle that can drive you five miles for a penny. A vehicle that needs no petrol, just a battery. And that takes the press of a button to start, the squeeze of a lever to stop. That needs no license, no road tax. And you can drive whether you're 14 or 40. A vehicle that costs just £399. The Sinclair C5. It's a new power in personal transport. The Sinclair C5, £399. Want to buy one? Want to see one? Or simply want to read all about it? Just dial 100 and ask for free phone C5 now. 
obviously the Sinclair C5, uh, which was just a real kind of um, nerd's idea of the transport of the future. Never mind the practicalities of the fact that lorries wouldn't be able to see you and you will almost certainly get killed if you actually go out on the streets in one of those babies. And then the Sinclair QL, which was a business machine which they um, which they bought out, which was designed to compete with the Apple Mac and IBM machines. Um, it was a little bit less powered. It was actually kind of like a, a, a fairly souped up uh, spectrum that was capable of running spreadsheets and what have you. But they rushed the release of it and the reliability of them is, was so terrible that it ended up getting pulled within a year. And within a not very long, you know. By 1986, the company was in such a bad state that it was sold to Amstrad, and had to be. And you know, and Alan Sugar was 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 there. You know, oh, oh yeah, I'll take it off your hands, yeah. yeah. And um, <laughs> and, yeah. and so he managed to, you know, to completely fuck the company up with these two really bad ideas that it makes you wonder whether there was nobody there who said Clive Clive this three-wheeled tricycle that basically has somebody half lying down and going a maximum speed of 15 miles an hour you you can't put that thing on the road you can't put it on the road people will get killed I mean then again maybe maybe in time he'll be proved to be right about that as well but no uh, no he won't no no he won't well i think you know it could be the solution to the road as long as that's what everyone's driving as as soon as you've got anybody in anything else it's a death yeah i mean he was an interesting bloke clive sinclair because he started out in the 70s with um uh, with a, a calculator that was available for like under a hundred pounds, uh, that was the kind of first thing. And, and God, imagine yeah, that. And, and then he had, the, then he made a, a watch, and it was like kind of one of the first commercially available digital watches. But the battery life on it was so terrible that they kind of barely lasted a day, and you had to change the battery on it. He kept coming back to this, uh, and each battery cost a hundred pounds. Yeah. And he kept coming back to this idea of making tiny television sets. Uh, there was one they had a little tiny black and white TV with like a five-inch screen that he bought out. I think again it was in the eighties, but there was a seventies iteration of it as well. And these things, they always suffered with reliability problems because they were being made out of like a you know out of a an aircraft hangar somewhere near Cambridge. Um, they always suffered with reliability problems. There were always problems with um, with getting stock to suppliers, uh, and uh, and and it was. The problem with Clive Sinclair and the problem with Sinclair Research is that he was a hobbyist. Um, He actually started out as a journalist uh, writing a column in... And we're talking about like the late 50s, early 60s here. uh, Writing a column in 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 a magazine for hobbyists who built transistors in the you know, in the early 60s. That was the background he came from. He didn't come from a commercial background. He came from a background in which people just liked tinkering with things and making things for the sake of making them. Um, and, you know, and that's fine. That's that's cool. You, you, you do you. But um, the problem comes then when you actually build something uh, which is 
commercially viable which actually you know right okay rather than selling a few hundred of these or just a couple of thousand of these you might be able to sell half a million of these and then when you get the success from that and you think right what am i going to do next and your mind defaults back to that hobbyist mindset and that that (laughs) to me was the problem with clive sinclair and the the spectrum the zx spectrum was the kind of you know it, it 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 was the exception rather than the rule in terms of the way that Sinclair Research did things. You know, the ZX-80 was only available by mail order in kit form. The ZX-81 was initially available in kit form, or they would put it together for you, but still only by mail order. And then they kind of reluctantly wheeled it out to the shops because people actually wanted it. So it was... There was... It wasn't meant to be a games machine. It became a games machine because people realised that you could make games with it. It's one of those great British stories, isn't it? It, it is. It's a, it's, a, it's a really interesting story, particularly when they start intersecting with other companies, which is a whole other tale for a whole other time. But um, we should be wrapping up anyway, because we've overshot our 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 target, rather like after passes in match day two. <laughs> uh, we, we've overshot our target. So we will be back again next week. Uh, with a different game. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at 2HT, T-W-O-H-T, or you can find us on Facebook at 200%.net. Um, if you really do appreciate what we do, we would be very grateful if you could subscribe through uh, Patreon, make a donation for, to us through Ko-Fi. I don't usually bang on about this sort of thing. I don't usually really push it very hard, but um, with the forthcoming... Uh, uh, financial apocalypse that's coming my wife isn't working i've lost all my overtime and i honestly don't know how i'm going to feed my family for the rest of this month um so if you can make a donation if you've thought of making a donation if you've thought of subscribing really now is the time to do it um and i i, I do feel quite uncomfortable with saying like that with saying that but you know I've got three mouths to feed in this house other than my own and I saw the state of my bank balance earlier today. So uh, thanks very much for listening. We will be back same time next week. Goodbye. <laughs>